It's as if people in the .NET world have kind of reached their comfort zone, and we're going to have a hard time budging them off of that. Welcome to Pixelate Radio, on the web at getpixelated.com. That's getpixel, the number eight, ed.com. Now, here's your host, Craig Shoemaker. You know, building software is just not easy. And building software that really cares about the user experience is no small feat either. In this day and age when so many technologies are screaming for your attention, you have to know exactly where you need to place your energies. Well, have no fear because famed developer Billy Hollis joins us today to help draw clear lines about what you need to learn and how to apply your knowledge in a professional manner. Do yourself a favor and check out the show notes at getpixelated.com slash shows slash learn. Sometimes it just feels like no matter what you do, there's just too much to learn. I mean, I sat down and I tried to think of just the technologies that we might run into on on a fairly regular basis and building just standard applications. HTML, XML, XHTML, SQL, XAML, C-Sharp, VB.net, CSS, WPF, Silverlight, WebForms, ASP.NET, MVC, AJAX, JSON, Link, WCF, Windows Workflow Foundation, Dynamic Data, and JavaScript. Now, even in that short little list, I'm sure there's things that I left out that you probably use every single day. And that doesn't even take into consideration the tool sets that we use and the different pieces of software. So it's just as a developer, there's a lot to know. And knowing that, it makes me really excited that you're listening to this because you're obviously the developer that our guest is not talking about. Billy's uh, going to go into a little bit about how he sees people kind of getting into their comfort zones and sort of stopping and not growing. But it's the people who listen to the podcast, read the blogs, have the passion about the technology that continue to grow that are the ones that really push our profession forward. But we have to do what we have to do in order to stay relevant, in order to be able to keep up on this stuff. I don't know if you, you remember, but a couple weeks ago, I mentioned some training courses that we're having in WPF and for the Infragistics tool set. The classes are set up in such a way that you get a really good foundation of WPF as a whole before you dive in and learn about uh, Infragistics WPF controls. So if you're interested in that, please make sure to check out the show notes where I'll list some dates and locations and find out if that's something that would help you. Last time on Pixelate. Hey, I don't know if you got a chance to check it out or not, but last week on the show we had David Platt where he talked about his book, Why Software Sucks. He's got a lot of very colorful ways of putting things. And so if you didn't get a chance to check it out, please go to getpixelated.com slash shows slash sucks. So I was very excited when Billy uh, accepted the invitation to come on the show. He's like the author or co-author of over a dozen books in the .NET arena. Uh, he's, he's kind of just a, a voice of, of pragmatic wisdom when it comes to development. And so I was very excited to be able to sit down with him and, and talk about his perspectives on learning.net and, and really what's relevant in the development community right now. Well, this is my first tech yet in a couple of years, and it's been good in the sense that I've gotten to see a lot of people I haven't seen in a long time. And certainly there's plenty to talk about. It has been surprising to me that the attendees have not been that they haven't advanced it that much in the last two years since the last time I was here. It's as if people in the .NET world have kind of reached their comfort zone, and we're going to have a hard time budging them off of that. Why do you think there's been a stagnation? Well, basically, I think people went through a process when .NET was introduced that was a rather painful because .NET is a complex platform. It's a very rich platform, and that implies that it has a lot of complexity. But its advantages over the COM-based world were so clear and compelling, and the advantages of ASP.NET were so compelling over active server pages that people really didn't have a choice. They had to 
buckle down and figure it out. But it was not an easy process. So they've reached the point where they can do something that they need to do uh, in some kind of reasonably effective way. There are probably places they could improve, but you know what they've got's kind of good enough. So now we have to offer them something really compelling and not too difficult to get to before they're willing to get out of that comfort zone because you know they, they come in every day they've got demands on them they've got they've got work the, the fact that they were able to produce some interesting things with dotnet just increased the demand for people to, to want more interesting things well now we have all these technologies and wpf is among one of the the technologies that seems like has maybe the biggest barrier to entry because of of the way things have changed and the the paradigms that you're having to deal with what would you tell people if they're just breaking into WPF? How, where, where do they start? Where do they go? You know, that's a very, very tough question because certainly WPF does have, among the, the latest round of technologies, WPF has the biggest surface area. And it's also difficult because you have to know a fair amount before you can do anything very useful in it. You can learn a little bit of WCF, Windows Communications Foundation, and, and do something productive with it and learn something more advanced later. With WPF, you can't. You really have to learn quite a lot to, to get anything done. And the, the first piece of advice I would, I would give people is you might as well expect that you will go through a period where you flounder. Now that's just going to happen and you better get ready for it. If you think that you're going to take a class or read a book and in a week or two you're going to be reasonably productive and proficient, that's just an unrealistic goal. You're going to flounder early, you're going to start trying to do simple things and just be baffled by something that you think ought to be very straightforward. Well, when you learn how to do it, it is pretty easy, but you'll research for two or three hours to find out how to do it. The immaturity of, immaturity of the tools is part of that, but part of it is the fact that, that you really have to shift your conceptual model for how the user interface is created, what, what the object model looks like. The object model basically supports the, the purposes of WPF as a user interface platform, and it is, the, I think, the most advanced user interface platform on the planet right now. Um, so it's worth getting to and worth taking the time, but you shouldn't underestimate what it will take. Now, in an interview that you did on ArcCast back in 2006 with Ron Jacobs, you talked about basically a fear that you had of WPF adoption because of well, what developers were going to have to go through and what hardware was going to need to be upgraded in order to do that. Is, do you see basically that exactly happening? Well, I was right about some things and wrong about others. The hardware did not turn out to be as big an issue as I thought it would be at the time. It was an issue, but it wasn't a huge one. Certainly there are machines, especially those that use the shared memory, the very cheap machines, that still WPF isn't very good on, even for simple WPF apps. But it turned out that as long as you aren't using fancy 3D things, that the machines sold since then have been pretty good. So I don't know that I was totally wrong there, but the effect wasn't quite as bad as I thought. But the effect of learning it and figuring it out actually was much worse than I predicted at the time. I knew that was going to be a problem, and it turned out to be a really, really big problem. So where does Windows Forms fit in, in your world right now? Well, I haven't done any active Windows Forms development now for about a year and a half, but I do have a client that is starting a brand new project. They're one of my minor clients. Usually I have a major client where I'm leading a team and then some other minor clients that I consult with for a few days at a time. I have one minor client that is starting a brand new project, a large project, and we consulted about it and they decided Windows Forms would be their technology even though it's new. And there were good reasons I think that, that they had for that. The area that they are going into is does not benefit as much from the capabilities of WPF. 
their developers are going to have to learn a lot, so keeping down the barrier to entry in, in, into the .NET space was important. A lot of their developers were coming from active server pages, so they really needed to, to keep down the, the hurdles that they had to go through to learn to be productive. So Windows Forms development is still viable, and there are special circumstances where you still want to use it, even in new projects. For existing projects where you have a big install base in Windows Forms, there's nothing wrong with continuing to use it as long as that system satisfies your needs because it's going to be supported into the indefinite future. So I don't, uh, even though I'm not working that much in it, I don't see any red flags concerning Windows Forms. If you're going into something new and, and you want to have a long shelf life, well, WPF has better possibilities there because it's Microsoft's user interface platform for the future. If you're going into a new system and the user experience has a high significance, a high relevance to the success of the application, then WPF is going to be a much better choice. WPF or, or Silverlight if it's going to be a web-based application. But one thing that people need to keep in mind, I think, is that over the next three years, I expect the bar to be raised for what people consider a minimally acceptable user experience. Today, today we put up with stuff on the web that I just, <laughs> I look at it and go, who thought this was a good idea? It's just, it's just awful. I can't navigate these sites. They're hard to read. Um, and, and we can do better. We can clearly do a lot, lot better than that. Once people, once we get a critical mass, applications that people use routinely that are better and that show it's possible, I think the pressure for everyone, or at least a large segment of the industry, to move to better UI will become very, very strong. And people need to be ready for that. There, there's so much emphasis on Silverlight and WPF, and th there, there's a lot of, okay, we're doing stuff because we can, not necessarily because we should, but I think new patterns are going to come out, and we're going to be a lot more experienced, even developers, in being able to, to build those types of, of UIs. That, yeah, the, the idea of having some new patterns is pretty key, because, let's face it, not every team is going to have the combination of skills to set a brand new user interface pattern. So one of the things that will get us to that critical mass point is when people see enough samples out there of the way things people have figured out how to do things that they can say, oh, that one is pretty close to what we need. Therefore, we'll copy that user interface pattern and get that kind of interaction. And we won't have to just invent it from scratch. Right. So that's one of the factors that will, will lead to that tipping point of, uh, of people adopting these technologies. Yeah. And, and one of the things that's going to be in between here and there is going to happen on client applications, just like happened on the web, was you know, everybody's going to put their little mark on it and do things a little bit different. And then that's all going to have to kind of shake down and, and come out to, to what the for lack of a better term, best practices are. That's right. We'll see, we'll see some pretty lame applications. We'll see some that probably could be characterized as hideous. It's really easy to overuse some things in WPF. Animation is probably one of the easiest things to overuse. Uh, and animation is, is a tremendous feature. It, it, people don't realize its significance because animation helps make applications work better with people's neural wiring in the sense that people's brains didn't evolve in 
a world that things disappeared here and reappeared there and <laughs> suddenly changed from red to blue. So those things set off alarm circuits in right. people's brains. So if you, if you use animation in a subtle fashion, it can send signals to the user without activating their alarm circuitry. Right. And so in that sense, it's good, but you have to learn to use it subtly. If you use it too much, it, it itself activates the alarm circuitry. And most of the animation I see used today, to be honest, is, is past that threshold, and therefore I would call it not useful, and in some cases just gratuitous. Yeah. Just the, the, the animated GIF of, uh, of Windows applications. That's right, these spinning logos, don't, don't do that. <laughs> Please don't. So now you've had a chance to uh, spend quite a bit of time in Blend. Can you tell us about your experiences as a developer using Blend? Well, you know, I've, I've, I've used various versions of Blend from the beginning, and Blend I regard as a pretty good starting point to get a lot of things that I need. It's not the ideal tool for constructing the ultimate end product because I tend to be a little more reliant on code features, perhaps, than other people might, because I'm not a designer. I, I, I understand the advantages of code, and and I'm very insistent that that a production level application should not have a lot of repetition. It should not have things that are difficult to maintain, and it's very easy with Blend to produce lots and lots of XAML that's not very well structured and that is hard to understand and maintain. So uh, to give a tangible example, you could, if you wanted to, accomplish the display of error messages by doing a lot of binding in XAML. That's, that's possible to do, and some of the books show XAML to do that. But the problem is now that you are replicating that XAML for every control, every interface element that the user interacts with. And gosh, that's a lot of repetition, isn't it? Now, I can capture an event with code, and with six lines, handle every user interface element on the page. And now, if someone adds a new element, they don't have to put that repetitious XAML in there. So that's an example of where a little bit of code could replace a whole lot of XAML. And that's not the sort of thing that a designer is going to do. So Blend isn't going to help me do that. Blend is going to help, you're nuts if you write animation by hand. And Visual Studio doesn't give you any capabilities at all. You're probably not being very effective if you're producing your visual brushes by hand, because Blend does that superbly well. Blend manages styles and resources. at not a level that I would consider ideal, but better than doing it manually. So there are things that you really, really need to do in Blend. And then there are things that Visual Studio does better, such as sort of getting some of your grid layout right and IntelliSense and XAML, so that if you're having to edit the XAML, and of course anything having to do with code. So you really have to combine them as a tool to be effective if you are a developer that is, has got their hands into the UI in any significant way. And, and most will, I mean, unless you're just working strictly on the business logic or some of the lower end features, I mean, you're going to have to deal with, like, like you gave the example of error messages and how they're going to be handled. That's right. That's not, the, that's not going to be the sort of thing a designer is going to care about, so you have to figure out what your approach is going to be there. I think that Microsoft has shifted a bit the, the elevator pitch for Blend for, since its inception, really, was that 
designers use Blend and developers use Visual Studio. And I think that Microsoft is coming around to understand that that's not really the way to look at it. One member of the, uh, of the team said, no, we look at it more as a task-based thing now. Blend is suitable for certain tasks, Visual Studio for other tasks, so you choose the tool based on the task, not on your role, which, which says that they're kind of coming around to a, a little more nuanced understanding. Right, well, that makes sense. Now, where, where do you think designers should be involved in, in the process? I mean, as an as a application goes from prototype all the way up into a production application, where are the designers going to be editing their code and have their hands in things? Well, see, that's, now that's an area where practices aren't set, and I can only give you my own opinions. And, and I would not claim that they should be universally adopted. I can just tell you what, what has worked for me and what I see to be likely to work in the kind of projects I work on, which tend not to be the larger enterprise-based projects. Now, a lot of the, what we see in the press and what we see in coming out of practices groups and, and what we see coming out of Microsoft is oriented around the enterprise. So understand that what I say is not aimed at that space. But you know, that space is a minority of all developers. So I'm looking more at the mid-size space. In that space, if you want to do WPF or Silverlight, a designer definitely can have a very, very valuable role because developers don't tend to be that good at opening their minds to interaction possibilities and they often don't have the visual sense. And there's, a, there's some value just in an application being pretty. Uh, yeah. Users perceive that it's pretty and therefore they, they think it's more valuable. Um, so you don't want to overdo that, but, but it, it can help. And, uh, and the interaction is certainly very important because it can promote productivity and promote satisfaction. So the designer will help a lot in that. On the other hand, designers aren't developers and they don't think very much in terms of the long-term implications of what they produce. So, you know, cut and paste style stuff is perfectly fine to them. If they find a way that works once and they've got some XAML that does what they want and they need to tweak it for something else, well, they'll just do that. And, and so you can end up with stuff that's not very well structured and is very repetitious. So the, the compromise we have found that works best is that the designers become heavily involved in participating in the requirements gathering and, and understanding the problem domain and then designing the UI in terms of prototypes. And we typically do multiple prototypes. Um, a, a favorite strategy of ours is to create a prototype that we think accomplishes the purpose and then set it aside and, and, and pretend that we can't use it for some technical reason or pretend the users have just rejected it out of hand or whatever, and try to come up with a completely different approach that would accomplish the same purposes. And we used to do this in Windows Forms too, and we would typically come with, with two or three. In the WPF world, we tend to come up with four or five. Really? Because we've just got a lot more tools at our disposal. We have a lot more options that we can, we can put, put forth. So the designer has a great role to play there. Now I'm lucky enough to have a young developer who is quite brilliant as a developer and also very capable as a designer. And people are fairly impressed with what we have, but we don't use a designer for everything. We have a, a designer that is peripherally, peripherally involved in some visual uh, elements. But I've worked on, on in some other areas and talked to some people about the role of the designer. And it is my feeling that it's that, that once the prototype cycle ends, that and the designer has helped you establish the user interface patterns. If you leave a lot of the application stylistically templated so that you don't really have, you can change the color schemes and visuals anytime you want, then at that point, 
you could put the designer on the shelf for a while. You don't need him. And you, you may very well want to, in many cases, you probably do want to replicate the prototype from a developer's perspective, that the developer now does the real production version. He recreates what the designer did for interaction features in a way that you hope is better structured, less repetitious, and more long-term maintainable than what a designer would create. So I don't claim that's the only pattern you can work in, sure. but I think it's one pattern that for medium-sized companies is going to work well. Now just a pragmatic question based off of that. When you're dealing with your clients, do they know this is the process and they know they are paying for all of that or do you work that into the bid along with everything else? Yeah, you have to pretty much explain all of that to the, to the clients because developers aren't up to speed on what to do yet, so you, you certainly know that clients are not. The, the key turning point there is to show them a sample in some related problem domain that just blows them away. And when you do that, they will do whatever you tell them they should do within whatever budgetary constraints that they have. So I have not found that to be a sticking point if you show them what the value is going to be up front. And that gets easier all the time as more samples in WPF and Silverlight come out. Now, if you have a developer who's working on the UI and maybe they're supporting something that exists or they're just the ones building it from the ground up, what kind of guidance or advice would you give people about just not going too far, not going crazy, not getting kind of seduced by the amount of power that's available in WPF? Well, that's a good question. The users can be your guide, and after a while, you, you learn from them what the natural limits are. One of the key things to keep in mind is that there is a difference, a very big difference, between what will impress somebody the first time they see the application and what they will put up with as a long-term user. <laughs> okay, that, right. as, a, as a developer, you have to understand that. So if you produce something that's very cool and flashy, whoever sells this application is going to like that. And gosh, that's valuable, isn't it, if it helps sell the app. But you have to be prepared to add in the configurability to turn off these features you think are cool. And that will go a long way towards stopping the gratuitous use of some of these features. Is that, okay, you put them in there, you probably shouldn't have, but if you can turn them off, then the long-term damage from them is not very significant. Yeah, okay. So when you're sitting down with a client and you're trying to figure out, based on their problem, and of course every, everything's different, but what kind of a decision process do you go through to decide, okay, well, maybe this is a Silverlight application, this is a WPF application, maybe it's a Rich Ajax application. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, at this point, the, the crudest measure would break down to internal versus external use. If it's internal on their own corporate network, there's probably, it, it's going to be rare that there's a good reason to make it anything besides a WPF app distributed off their servers. Now, of course, there are geographically distributed organizations for which that's true. I was re recently talking to an organization that runs circuses, for example. And they're all over the place and their people are moving around a lot. Now, even internal apps, you don't want them to be WPF-based. So if, if the reach need is there, either because you have external clients that you do not control their systems, or you have a high degree of geographic flexibility in your organization, then that will drive you to Silverlight. And I think, to be honest, that the proportion of Silverlight to WPF um, implementations when you start to see maturity will be at least four or five to one. 
in terms of Silverlight outweighing WPF. That the WPF scenario is good for internal things and if you have very complex rich UI, call center type things, financial services, you know, stock broker sort of control panel dashboardy things, those kind of things WPF makes a lot more sense because you have a lot more control over some of the, the, the feature and performance aspects of the product. And if you're doing anything that involves 3D modeling, but you know, that's a fairly small space, but, but now you, you've now eliminated Silverlight. If you're doing anything that does complex document management, then now WPF is better than Silverlight. If you're doing anything that's very strongly media related, actually Silverlight's probably better, even internally, because it's really optimized for media. So there are a variety of factors you take into account, but the first thing you look at is kind of the internal external reach question. So are you maintaining a blog right now? You know, I blog for about six months and I love doing it and I'm so bloody busy. I just, <laughs> I, it's really, really hard to find the time. I, I love to blog, but I'm not doing it now. If I get this book done, I, I hope to get back to it. I really do because I enjoyed the experience so much. But no, I'm, I'm not right now. I do actually read a number of blogs, but I'm not producing one. And what book are you working on right now? I'm working on a book from Microsoft Press on WPF. And I can tell you, I've told many people this week, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Trying to explain WPF in a linear fashion in a book is just a challenge that I, I, I can't explain to people how many times I've had to go back and rethink my approach. But I'm kind of over the hump with that now. And I'm happy with the results, actually, when we're done. And so is the publisher. And we hope that we, if, if this turns out well, that I'll do a Silverlight version of it because the overlap among the conceptual structure is two-thirds, three-quarters. So we hope to do that. Um, I'm going to try to get it finished up this summer, hopefully for, for distribution this fall. And it's, it's more of a conceptual book to build the, the skeleton in your head of what WPF looks like rather than a feature-based book. Okay. And sort of how you would use it for routine business apps, which is kind of the bread and butter in the industry, more so than how you would use it to write some fancy yeah. dashboard or something. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the, the people who might be interested in this book are people starting out or maybe intermediate developers? Um, I think it's aimed at people starting out. I think intermediate developers who are not sure that they've really gained the kind of conceptual understanding of the platform that they'd like to could probably benefit from it and they'd be able to go through it a lot faster, I think, because they would understand a lot of the details. But the primary audience is people who have yet to, to, to open up a WPF program. And if people want to find more information about you, they just go to uh, .netmasters.com? .netmasters.com, or they can you know, stick my name into a search engine, and <laughs> at least the most common search engine, and it will, come up, uh, it will come up as the first item in the list. Right on. Well, thanks a lot for spending some time with us today. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. Well, there you have it. Hey, in the show notes, uh, Billy's book is done. I've linked to it, so if you want to check out his WPF book. Uh, we'll have a link directly over there to it. Again, thanks a lot for checking out the show. I hope we're doing our part to help keep you tooled up and sharp enough for uh, whatever you have coming your way. And uh, well, this is Craig Shoemaker, and I'll be talking to you soon. Pixelate Radio, on the web at getpixelated.com. That's get, pixel, the number eight, ed.com. All rights reserved, copyright 2008. Infragistics, powering the presentation layer. Infragistics.com